Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. Bill Crystal is away this week, but we're fortunate to have Weekly Standard White House correspondent Michael Warren here in his place. Michael, welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast. Thanks, Eric. It, it feels a little little strange for me to be here, like uh, like maybe I don't belong. So I, I, I'm refraining from doing my Bill Crystal impression throughout <laughs> this podcast. I'll just do this as myself. So. All right. Yeah, nobody would buy it. <laughs> so what? the other thing that nobody was buying was a health care plan on Capitol Hill early hours of this morning. Well, they got 49. 49. Uh, just, just not enough. Not a majority of people were buying in the Senate. So, You know, usually when it comes to legislation, getting past 49 <laughs> is what matters. Right. So, so they had had a whole string of votes, a string of, of proposals. There was the Senate plan with Cruz and Portman amendments, that one went down 43-57. Repeal and delay with the Paul Amendment. That one failed 45-55. to 55. Democrats proposed, in what seemed to be a gesture of sanity, a return to committee process, <laughs> normal order of business. That failed 48-52. to 52. And then ultimately, there was the skinny repeal plan, that failed 49-51 when uh, John McCain joined Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. Susan Collins in dooming the effort. Right. And the, uh, the Democrats' worst enemy, John McCain, soon became their, uh, uh, their greatest hero. So uh, it was this. Yeah, I mean, it was it was the end, at least for the for the moment of the Republicans effort to repeal Obamacare, although we should we should note that Mitch McConnell. Uh, uh, using you know procedural tools has left it open for the possibility, however unlikely that is in the political environment, for the possibility to bring up the House bill, which remember the House has passed a health care, uh, an Obamacare repeal and replace bill, uh, to bring that up again should the opportunity arise. Uh, but uh, again, it's it seems unlikely uh, at this point. Um, the the uh, uh, McConnell essentially gave a, a an address last night after the after the uh, bill was uh, the bill had failed, saying, "Well, that was it, and and we move on now." Um, and and I think that's that's likely what what's Why going to happen. Why after the humiliation of all of this would they want to try to take it up again? Because there's nothing that suggests that they've moved the ball in any way towards some kind of solution. Right. Now, if they were to, say, sort of start from scratch, do the things that some of us at The Standard have been advocating they do, which is reading the bill, reading the bill, returning to, you know, sort of committee uh, 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 hearings on on healthcare legislation, sort of taking away uh, from from Mitch McConnell and the leadership, the sort of. Uh, ability for them to just do this all behind closed doors, but to have it open and have an open process, maybe they could do that again. I don't. I just don't think there's any political will. I mean, and the there's process no- was so deranged that we got to the point um, last night where you had senators saying, "I'll only support the bill if I have a guarantee from the conferees on the House side that they won't let the bill I'm voting on." be the final word right it, it, absurd is the only way to put it right right i mean you're basically ha- you have a big chunk of republican senators uh probably all of them if you really press them on it uh who were voting for something that they didn't actually want 
to become law. And this is really just not the way that Congress is supposed to work. Um, and, and we talk about sausage making and legislation. <laughs> right. This gives a bad name to sausage making. It, I mean, the, the sausage makers of America are like, hey, wait one Exactly. Second. It's almost, uh, I'm, I do extend this metaphor probably too far. I, like, it's, it's, it's as if they sort of made the sausage, uh, did, a, you know, did uh, a whole batch of it, and then squeezed out all the sausage just to have the casings to, to try to see if they could squeeze some new sauce. I mean, it's like, it's this, it's this bizarre, and it's sort of, it's exactly what I think most Americans think uh, is sort of wrong with the way Washington works, is it's all uh, this arcana, the Senate and uh, arcana, this um, sort of behind closed doors, uh, where, where nothing is what, uh, it's almost like postmodern legislating. Um, and, and I think that's a big reason why this failed. It's ultimately, you know, John McCain got a lot of grief for opening debate on this from Democrats. And of course, he got, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, got a lot of praise from them when he ended up voting down. But if you listen to the speech that he gave after he decided to open, uh, after he was the deciding vote to open up uh, debate on uh, Obamacare repeal, uh, he made a, uh, a statement which essentially said, uh, we've got to return to sort of a regular order here and, and do what uh, what the Senate is supposed to do. And it would have been, I think, really hypocritical for him to then turn around and vote for um, a bill that did not go through that regular order. I think in, if you if you pressed him on it, you'd see that McCain was really making a point. And so, uh, you know, about about this. So um, that to me explains his vote. Um, and and is a, a good lesson that I don't expect Republicans to, to take, but, um, but, but here we are. But the thing that's really surprising to me is that this fell apart when there was a sustained, focused, concerted effort by the White House to organize <laughs> support and to build a consensus around the, oh, I get I'm Well, what planet were you, have you been on, Eric, for the past <laughs> six months? Because it's not this one. Where, where was the White House effort? I mean, when when Obamacare was being put in place, you had the White House organizing the experts. You had them focusing the legislative effort on a particular plan. They were running the show. Now, there was, there was a lot of involvement of um, legislators, letting them do the legislative work, but it was all being organized and directed by the White House, and the White House had a strategy not only for what kind of legislation they wanted to see, but a PR strategy for how to get it across the line. Yeah. So I think, uh, let me take this in, in sort of two big parts here. The first is to sort of uh, demonstrate how different it actually was uh, in 2009, 2010 for the Democrats uh, situation was than, than it was this time with the Republicans. Uh, when the Democrats were pushing through uh, Obamacare, first of all, they did it over the course of you know ten months, uh, it took a long time to find consensus. They did not uh, sort of have this arbitrary timeline. I mean, I suppose there was a timeline of the idea that it was possible that the Democrats could lose the House and possibly the Senate in the 2010 midterm election. So they had that timeline there. Right. But and but, at the end of the day, they did push push through a bill that nobody had read that you had to you know vote on to see what was in it. That's and, right. Um, there were a lot of shenanigans, but there were focused strategic shenanigans going on rather than just apoplectic 
know-nothing shenanigans that, going on. That's right. You had you did have larger margins for um, for the Democrats in the House and the Senate um, that Obama could work with, um, but Obama also had general buy-in. Uh, on the whole idea. And this was an issue that Democrats have been thinking about for 50 years. I mean, ever since John Dingell's father introduced, uh, um, you know, a a single payer health insurance uh, bill back in the 1950s, back in the Eisenhower administration, or maybe even before, um, this was something that Democrats have been obsessed with. Republicans have been working on this um, for essentially seven years. Um, Now, I think that's plenty of time for them to come up with something, but... um, it's it, there is none of the sort of intellectual uh, uh, groundwork that the Democrats had, uh, and the the other thing that's different is is what you're talking about right uh, right here with the Obama administration's push for this. Now, uh, you talk to Democrats on, Democrats on Capitol Hill, they will tell you that throughout Obama's presidency, he was uh, difficult to work with legislatively. Uh, you know, sort of legislative um, uh, affairs. Uh, the president was sort of the kind of swoop in and kind of take credit for what 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 the congressional committee chairs and whatever uh, had had worked on. Um, but uh, he was making a public case for it, and this was really uh, Obama's best asset. Right, he was sort of out there. He had the Rose Garden thing with the doctors, where they had yes. arranged to have nicely starched white lab coats for all the doctors to wear. Yes. Um, that convinced me, actually. That's when I threw my support to Obamacare. When I... And clipboards. Yeah, exactly. The, well, ex- exactly. But, I mean, that that is a part of that is a part of the job of the president, uh, is to make a public case. It is, it's the bully pulpit, right? And I would argue, actually, that Donald Trump and Barack Obama are very similar in this way, and that they have a power that, uh, in the Democrats' case, Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid didn't have, and that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell don't have, which is they have the ability to uh, get their party, get their get their supporters, get people on board at least uh, at the margins with these with these proposals. And, and and here's the here's the big difference: Donald Trump, for the last six months, has done pretty much nothing in the public sphere to make to make a substantive case for any kind of health care reform. I, I believe the technical term is bupkis. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, I think you'll find that in a, a scientific dictionary. This is, this is. I, I think, the reason for this is there's a couple of reasons. One, we could talk about this in a little bit, but, of course, he's been distracted by many different uh, of his own own scandals and other issues or whatever. Um, the second is there's there's never really been a consensus among Republicans about how to uh, repeal Obamacare, what to replace it with, whether it needs to be replaced. Um, they were sort of inching toward this idea um, uh, or toward an idea of how to replace it sort of around the Tom Price, who's now the HHS secretary, the Tom Price model um, uh, of, of, of health care reform. Uh, but there was never really a consensus, and and President Trump never really had a strong opinion about it. In fact, any opinions you can kind of grok from him from the campaign on health care are actually uh, in contradiction to what g- congressional Republicans have been calling for. Essentially, um, uh, you know, universal coverage, um, which I guess Republicans have kind of come around to, but the sort of universal coverage uh, that you get from single payer, like uh, as Trump uh, touted on the campaign trail, like they have in Scotland or they have in Canada. Well, that has really nothing to do with what Republicans want on health care, free market reforms and that sort of thing. 
Uh, so he didn't have a really uh, uh, grounded and certainly not uh, congruent view of health care reform with uh, congressional Republicans. And he, he doesn't have really anything. That, he doesn't even have the shallowest uh, conception of what he what he thinks is should be the healthcare regime in this country. I mean, you talk to senators who met with him over the past several months on healthcare, and and what they'll say is he doesn't know anything. He doesn't have any interest in finding out any of those details. So that just all of that makes it very hard to then, even if he wanted to, to push the president out there to the public and say this is the reason why. Uh, you know, the Democrats are going to say. This plan will kick 16 million people off their health insurance. Well, you need a very skilled political uh, uh, political actor uh, to make the case to the American people about why that's uh, not as bad as it sounds or what it actually means and why that's better for uh, the country as a whole. Nobody was making any of those arguments now, Aside from the, from the, White the question of the, the president making the case, the president's spokespeople I guess we're making cases, but they didn't seem to have much to do with health care. You had the delightful Anthony Scaramucci <laughs> dominating the messaging of the White House this week. And it was a message, you know, I've seen a lot of people try to refer to it as obscenity laden. That doesn't even come close to capturing the flavor of Anthony Scaramucci's rant on the record to Ryan Lisa at, uh, at The New Yorker. I mean, we, we can't on a family podcast repeat many parts of it. No, um, nor do we, I want to. And, and with a, a warning, um, you can only suggest that people go and look at The New Yorker piece to get a flavor of the true insanity that is Anthony Scaramucci. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean... It's it sort of leaves me speechless, Eric. I, that, that makes for bad podcast, I know. But the, the, I have I have never, um, you know, I've I've covered politics for a, a few years, and I've read a lot of sort of political history. I've never come across anything as bizarre uh, and really as outrageous as what it's what happened. It, it is. It's 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 shocking. And 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 you know, it's even more shocking is it would have seemed to me in almost any other White House, if you had a spokesman who, on the record, went on, again, obscenity-laced is not even close to right. capturing what he had to say, um, obscene, just flat-out obscene, angry, deranged comments, would be flat-out immediate firing offense for anyone who was supposedly in a position to represent a White House. Right. Um, let's and, and he's not. And in fact, the president uh, is apparently not only likes what has been published, uh, what Scaramucci said, but essentially Scaramucci had had come from a dinner, and we can explain kind of exactly what happened uh, in the in the background of this. Had come from a dinner with the president before talking to Ryan Lizza about this. So this was, I think, we can all safely assume uh, and and do a little more than a, a assume based on you know what what people have reported that this was something the president okayed. That this is something the president sanctioned uh, Scaramucci to do, because it's not just the profanity. The profanity is sort of the the icing on the on the cake uh, for for Scaramucci. Look, look deeper into what he said. He's going after Reince Priebus, who we know the president is annoyed with and wants to get rid of the chief of staff. He goes after Steve Bannon, who's sort of the ideological uh, voice in among Trump's uh, senior aides in the White House. Um, 
he's uh, criticizing and going after making sort of taking these trivial many of them trivial, not all of them, but many of them trivial leaks and making it into essentially a federal case and saying, in fact, I've talked with the DOJ, I've I've talked with my buddies at the FBI, and we're going to be looking into this. I mean, that raises all kinds of questions about uh, about propriety, about the sort of ethics of a White House staffer talking with the FBI about investigating. I mean, the whole thing is crazy, and it's all sanctioned by the president. So, the, the profanity is sort of uh, it makes your eyes, you know, bug out. But then when you actually get a little deeper into what he said, which was essentially uh, just a quick explainer here for listeners, the uh, uh, what what happened was uh, Ryan Lizza, uh, veteran political reporter, he's at The New Yorker, uh, reported, I believe, on Twitter, didn't even post this on the, on The New Yorker's website, that Scaramucci President Trump, Sean Hannity, Bill Shine, the former VP uh, at Fox News, uh, were all going to dinner uh, this week together. He reported that. This is the perfectly anodyne, even if it hadn't been announced. Right. It's, it's, this was not exactly national state secrets. Uh, exactly. And, and a, a quick word about that. This is a this is a, an elision that is being made by the White House that a leak from everything from uh, the president's dinner companions uh that a leak means that to the nuclear code exactly uh to something that's you know highly classified information uh there's you're just comparing apples and oranges it's not the same so uh scaramucci calls after the dinner calls ryan lissa to to berate him into giving up his source for this and ryan lissa doesn't do that and Uh, by the way uh forgets to say before beginning his berating All right, this is on background. Exactly. It just just starts talking. Things uh, things that people who have some experience dealing with the press learn as a just as a matter of course. Like a communications director on a small town uh, mayoral race would know to start that uh, uh, that that conversation off within. By the way, this is off the record, and he didn't. Um, so, th- th- the point of all this is is that uh, is that. Scaramucci uses this opportunity uh, to basically uh, convey what the president thinks about all these people and about all these leaks. And what it reveals, I think, ultimately is a is a White House and really a president um, who is so mired in the small things, so mired in uh, PR, so mired in how the media covers him. He's obsessed with the media, obsessed with the newspapers and cable news, and sort of obsessed with image. It really has nothing to do with policy. It has nothing to do with uh, really even kind of grander politics. Do I have a good hold on uh, my party? Uh, do I am I able to push forward my agenda? When you all boil it down to you know down to what what it really seems to all be about, it's about him. It's about Trump. And Scaramucci does a good job of sort of uh, defending uh, with impunity everything about Trump and accusing anybody else uh, uh, around him who's not sufficiently loyal to the idea of President Donald Trump, um, uh, you know, accusing them uh, essentially of uh, of not having the interests of, of the country. So what happens to what's left of the morale in the White House when the president has unleashed this refugee from the third season of Jersey Shore, nasty little man to run around 
threatening people with FBI investigations as though there's not enough FBI investigations going on right. in the White House distracting the personnel there from their jobs as it is. Well, uh, I think there's a couple things that could happen. Uh, I, I do believe, um, and I have reason, to, I have good reason to think this, is that there, there are plenty of senior people in the White House and the West Wing who are thinking about leaving. Um, and are right. If you were Reince Priebus, wouldn't you be grateful to be out of the White House at this point if you could figure out some kind of exit strategy that wasn't you know, personally ruinous? I think that's, that's the question, right? How do I get out of here with some bit of my reputation or my earning power still intact? I mean, think about Reince Priebus in his mid-40s. He's got young kids. Um, He's got a lot of lobbying left to do. Exactly, <laughs> a lot of speaking engagements to give. Uh, but but I think I think that's you know he, he's got to be thinking about that. There are other people in the White House, policy type people who uh, who you know want and need to have careers and, and they have reputations. They're trying to figure out. I think there's a realization among those people. I would call the sort of serious people. It's not to disparage political people or folks, but the kind of people who go into a White House to. Uh, because they, you know, have very strong opinions about tax policy or whatever. Care about the issues, want good things for the country, right. see a Republican president as an opportunity to pursue good policies. And and, and and I will go this far as to say, and even see Donald Trump as somebody who can implement those. Um, I think now it's what, whatever hopefulness there has been among those people uh, that, that despite all of his sort of uh, personal failings and, and problems as the president, that he could do that. I think all of that sort of, uh, uh, you know, fallen away. And now it's about trying to figure out how do I get out of here? And then, Eric, I think that's a, a very troubling, at uh, least to us to a very troubling question, which is if you ha- if you see a mass exodus here, what happens then? Who's next to fill those roles? Who wants to go work in a White House where Anthony Scaramucci is threatening to, quote, kill all the leakers, um, as he as he told Ryan Lizzo. Um, I, 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 I do not believe he actually believes he wants to murder the, all the leakers. But that's the kind of uh, talk that would make in any other business, if you heard that uh, somebody who was hiring uh, has a, that you have, there's a manager who speaks that way, You'd, you'd, no matter how hard up you are for work, I think you'd run the other way. This, this is why some people have begun using Game of Thrones analogies. <laughs> you know, you have the, the king and the hand of the king in yes. a very empty throne room. It's very cold up there on that uh, on the <laughs> Win- Iron winter Throne. Is coming. Winter, winter is coming, whether they like it or not. Michael Warren, White House correspondent of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining us on the Crystal Clear podcast. Thanks, Eric. Support for the Crystal Clear podcast comes from Simply Safe. A lot of us get excited for summer because it means going on vacation, spending long days at the beach, maybe taking the kids to an amusement park. You know what gets a burglar excited for summer? Knowing that you'll do all those things and leave your house empty. Summer is prime time for burglary, so now is the time to protect your home. For a limited time, you can take $100 off Simply Safe's special summer package. It has everything you need to protect your home, an arsenal of security sensors to secure each door and window, a panic button, a blaring siren, and a wireless connection to authorities and police dispatch. Your family, your home, and everything in it stays safe around the clock. With Simply Safe, there are no long-term contracts, no installation costs, and no hidden fees. 
and 24-7 professional monitoring is just $14.99 a month. This summer, see what Simply Safe can do for your home. Get $100 off your summer security package at simplysafe.com/standard. This sale ends July 31st. That's simplysafe, s i m p l i s a f e.com/standard to get your $100 off. That's it for the Crystal Clear podcast. Be sure to tune in every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website weeklystandard.com. I'm Eric Felton. Thanks for listening.